so you know welcome to, to people um you know there's a bunch of people who here who know me and some who might not know me so um if you don't know me i hope you'll get used to me uh i i'm a an acquired taste i think we could say or let's say i'm not the flavor for everybody but i hope you enjoy it um and yeah this this class um is a pretty unique one it's the only thing that spirit rock does uh to support people in recovery actually jack cornfield who i've known for over 40 years um when I came out with one breath at a time, he told me that he had, he, when they opened spirit rock just over 30 years ago, he wanted them to invite AA meetings onto the land, but the rest of the rest of the board or whoever vetoed that. So, but uh, he's very supportive of this work. And, um, you know, for years I've been going out on that, one Friday night each month uh, to the land. And if you ever get a chance to go to Spirit Rock uh, for a retreat, I highly recommend it. It's, it's a beautiful place and, and very well run. And and the food is fantastic, <laughs> which uh, is a you know, big bonus. Um, so what we do on these, these evenings is uh, we meditate for a while and I'll, I'll guide the meditation and uh, I can see my, I saw myself frozen there. I'm going to put myself on speaker view. I don't usually like to look at myself, but I want to see if I'm, how much I'm freezing. Um, so we'll meditate and then we'll take a little break so we can check the score. I mean, take a little break, uh, bio break. And then uh, I'm going to give some kind of a talk, but I don't know what that's going to be tonight. I'm kind of a wreck right now. Not a wreck wreck, but just like kind of fuzzy brain. Um, and uh, and I'm trying. <laughs> Went for a long walk today. I read a bunch of Dharma. I did some extra meditation. <laughs> so it's not, um, you know, meditation teachers are supposed to just have like all this wisdom that they can just eject uh, or inject. <laughs> Uh, well, maybe that's not a good a good term to use for addicts. Um, in any case, uh, we'll see. But you know, the, really, what we're doing here in my mind is coming together, and and um, you know, that's one of the things I was thinking about today is just how how important community is for our recovery and really for any of our spiritual growth. You know, I was thinking about the what it says in the AA big book about um, our sobriety is contingent upon the daily maintenance of our spiritual condition. And, and so I was thinking about what are the things that, uh, you know, that helped me maintain my spiritual condition. And it just kind of came, kept coming back to um, community. So maybe I'm inventing a talk as we, as we sit here, we'll see. Um, so, so, um, so we're going to meditate and, and we're going to sit for about 30 minutes, which I know for some people might seem like a long time. 
it might might be a long time. Um, but uh, there's a real value in in working with kind of extending and kind of pushing the boundaries of your uh, normal meditation period. Um, for one, it allows more deepening of concentration or just kind of calm. And it also kind of will, will bring you up against things that are difficult, but that then makes for the possibility of moving through things. You know, when we, when we kind of bail out quickly on our meditation, if you only meditate for a few minutes, um, that can be useful, but um, it, it can limit really what you gain through your practice. So learning to kind of work with those edges, I think is really valuable. In any case, uh, I will guide for uh, about half the time. I might uh, put in a, a couple other comments after the halfway point, but usually I, I like to guide for about 15 minutes and then let there be quiet for 15 minutes for people to just, um, you know, work with their own practice without kind of having this voice constantly telling them what to do or interrupting their focus or interrupting their daydreams, whatever might be happening. So the starting point is to get into a posture that's going to be supportive of awareness and clarity. So for some people that'll be sitting upright, that's the kind of traditional way of meditating, but for others who are, you know, having, who have physical difficulties or limitations, or just right now not comfortable, lying down is okay. Um, you can also do walking meditation. Uh, moving can be a very effective way to meditate. Um, probably if you're gonna do that, I'd suggest turning off your video and so just settling in, seeing what that means. You can close your eyes. If you're not comfortable with your eyes closed, you don't have to close them. Just, just lower your gaze. You don't need to be looking at the screen during the meditation. And as soon as we move out of the visual world, then the other senses tend to awaken more. So first just notice how you're holding your body, not just the posture, but kind of any tension or the, if you're forcing yourself to be sitting in a certain way, seeing if you can just relax, be at ease, It can be helpful to do a brief scan just to relax different points in the body and to not just relax, but to become attuned to the different sensations. So I like to start with the facial muscles, relaxing the jaw, 
softening the eyes. It can be interesting to just notice that there are sensations on the skin and the fa- of the face. You might also feel the blood, the warmth, the coolness of the skin pulsing, tingling. Or maybe you're not really feeling much or nothing really stands out. That's okay too. Moving the attention down, release the shoulders. Can be a tendency sometimes to hunch the shoulders. So just seeing if you can be easy with shoulders and then feeling the arms and hands. We're just tuning into these subtler sense experiences. This has a natural calming effect on us because the mind focuses Observing closely, this naturally quiets the mind because the the attention has to ramp up to to be aware of these subtler sensations. It can be interesting to tune into the hands even to let your mind go from one finger to the next, just feeling the fingers separately. It's almost like a a superpower really that we can do that. We can tune in the mind moves, we can move the mind, focus the mind, choose what we pay attention to. And then coming back to the torso, softening the belly. This is a good stress reducer to Breathe into the belly. We do this naturally at times. When we sigh, you can use that belly softening very intentionally. 
feel to how the whole torso, the chest, the ribs, belly, they're all, they're all part of the breathing. Letting the attention move through the hips, pelvis, down the legs, into the feet. Now, see if you can feel the whole body at once. Feel your body as a single thing rather than these individual sensations. Feel the living organism. And now we can begin to work with the breath. We use the breath as our primary focal point, the anchor for our attention. It doesn't mean we're trying to exclude other sensations or other perceptions. It's just that the breath kind of comes to the foreground. You can feel the breath at the nostrils, the touch of air coming in and out. Or follow the movement in the belly rising and falling. And here it can be helpful at least to start by verbally saying to yourself what you're doing, breathing in, breathing out, breathing in, breathing out, in, out, in, out. Staying with the sensations. The words are just guides to the attention, reminders to stay with those sensations. In out, 
It's natural that the mind will wander when we try to pay attention to the breath or try to hold to the breath. So we gently come back whenever you notice the mind has wandered, just bring it back to the breath. If there's a particular theme in your thoughts, if you keep going to something in particular, it's kind of got its hooks in you. Make a note of that. Just kind of check that off. Ah, look at that. Maybe you're not surprised because it's something you've been concerned about. Or maybe it seems to come out of nowhere. Some old memory, some concern that you hadn't really thought was so important. It's not uncommon for any underlying anger or resentments, fears, anxieties to bubble up in the quiet of meditation. Here we are trying to get some peace or calm Instead, it's like our mind hijacks the quiet and says, ah, there's a nice space I can jump into, obsess. We can have such a habit of distraction and activity that we don't give space for any kind of underlying tendencies, feelings, thoughts,
So sometimes in our meditation, we have to let the, those energies kind of play out. We, not that we just indulge in them, but that we don't fight with them. We recognize that they have a certain energy that has to be respected. But we try to stay with the breath, even as those thoughts and feelings and energies kind of bubble up. If we don't feed them, they'll tend to play out. So that's why we want to be careful. not to go in and keep fueling the fears, the resentments. More like acknowledge them, allow them, respect them. And then say, let go, come back to the breath.
All right. I resisted saying more. <laughs> if I had said more, it would have been something like, notice what's, uh, what's difficult. And notice, notice what pulls the mind away. This can be a real uh, place of learning to, to start to notice what are the habits of my mind? You know, where do I tend to go? You know, there's a certain kind of like, Buddhist teaching about tendencies that some people have tendencies towards uh, craving or uh, wanting intensifying. Others have the tendency towards aversion and sort of pushing away and uh, shutting down. These are called like the, the sort of the desire type and the aversion, aversive type. And then there's a third type, which is the sort of deluded type so that kind of tends to not know what's going on or wonder what's going on and be confused. And so, so part of this practice is to study your own mind. And not to get too, too so caught up in it that that you're spending all your time like trying to figure out what's going on, but just you kind of like put a pin in it. What that was that thought? That was that thought? That was okay. And then see if you can understand and start to see the patterns as a way of disidentifying with them, starting to see that they are just habitual patterns they they aren't they don't necessarily mean anything other than it, these are habits and so that when they appear in your daily life you can kind of maybe laugh them off or or just kind of say thanks for sharing or you know if they aren't useful that that you can see that you don't have to be ruled by them. That's one of the really important lessons of meditation, right? That we don't have to be ruled by our own minds, by our own thoughts. As this is the ordinary way of being. That if, if we don't understand that our thoughts are just conditioned creations that appear and disappear, if we if we take them to have meaning and uh, and information that's important, uh, at least that every one of them is has that, then we kind of get on this uh, you know hamster wheel, sort of acting out on all of it. And so when we bring this quality of attention and start to see the thoughts less personally, then 
we start to have choices about how to respond, which is, of course, a, you know, a, a standard 12-step cliche that we have choices today. And mindfulness is what really gives us choices. Uh, you know, addiction is, is being dictated to by your impulses and by your beliefs and by your thoughts, and by your cravings. And, you know, freedom is, is being able to make a choice based on wisdom and based on what you really want rather than what you're being sort of driven or pushed, pushed or feel pulled to do. Now, this is the sort of secondary value of meditation besides just getting some peace and some calm, which is, I would say, sort of the primary value. But it's the calm and the peace that allows you to see the mind in that way and that allows you then to, to make other choices. So we'll take a, a little break. Um, and then we'll come back and uh, talk some more. So take about five minute break. Okay. Uh, a couple things I thought I would talk about, maybe bring bring these things together. Um, one, I this was my um, recovery anniversary week, and um, so. Uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, my history and and hopefully some, you know, general ideas around that that aren't just about me. Um, but also, uh, you know, I often uh, make this class sort of use the theme of the, the step of the month. So the, the, this is the sixth month and the step, sixth step says we were uh, entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character, which uh, have to, uh, I would prefer to remove God from the equation and just say, really just talk about being ready to change or even just about change and, and how, how we change the implications of that and the challenges of that. So I was, I was thinking a little about, you know, uh, um, my own history uh, around drugs and alcohol and the different things that uh, influenced it becoming, you know, a problem <laughs> or an addiction. Uh, um, and, and uh, you know, to acknowledge, first of all, that there's, you know, a genetic proclivity in my family. Uh, there was a lot of alcoholism. And, and then for me, I think there was also a psychological or emotional proclivity. I, I already started to experience depression before I even had my first drink or drug. But the, the third thing that's kind of interesting, though, too, is the, the cultural times. So, you know, my parents uh, never smoked marijuana, you know. 
there was no cocaine around or LSD. Uh, you know, so so the culture. You know, I started to drink around 1966 and started to take drugs in 67. So, you know, it was there was a sense of uh, that, particularly with drugs, that there was actually a political component to taking drugs, that it was a rebellion against the mainstream culture. And that it, there was also, at least for a little while, the idea that there was a spiritual element to it, which, of course, now that's uh, with with uh, psychedelics and and uh, ayahuasca and all that. That's sort of you know back as a popular viewpoint. Um, and so, just to acknowledge, like. Uh, Again, sort of taking it out of the personal, like I am an addict, like I am an addict, and this all happened because of me. But to see that, um, you know, we are we are creations, you know, of of our time and of our family and of of our circumstances. You know, if you were raised, if if you were lived in an indigenous culture that didn't have alcohol, you couldn't become an alcoholic, you know, <laughs> not to be such simplistic, but just it's interesting to see all that. So uh, not, not, that's not so much the theme of what I wanted to talk about, but it is something I want to acknowledge uh, because uh, just to put this to maybe wrap up the cultural part of it, when I got sober in 1985, which is, you can see it's almost two decades after I started drinking and using, there was this whole movement of people from my generation starting to get sober. And AA had this huge explosion in the, in the 80s, you know. That, that, uh, so it's just interesting to see that uh, my addiction as well as my recovery were, were besides being personal, were cultural. Uh, and tied up with the culture. But this idea then of being ready to change, you know, just thinking about uh, my addiction, you know, I could say in some ways, oh, I was, I was ready to do something different. You know, I was ready to drink or I was ready to take drugs, you know. Uh, you know, I was willing to, ch those were changes from what, I, you know, from what I was doing. But of course they were unwise and ultimately harmful behaviors. And, and a lot of what they are about, they were about for me and I think they're about for others very often is the difficulty of feeling feelings and de and dealing with my feelings and particularly you know what well, i think many of us become get, get on the path of addiction as adolescents and in, in our teenage years when so much change is happening and so much is being expected of us uh, 
and and this is when we're supposed to go from being essentially children to adults and and in other words be willing to change and be willing to grow and and i can see that for, for me again i think this is very common that uh, well i don't think it's just a a personal story is that i didn't want to be an adult i didn't want to it's not that i didn't want to be an adult I, I wanted the privileges of adulthood i didn't want the responsibilities of adulthood and i didn't i i really didn't feel capable of handling uh the emotional challenges of being an adult which essentially when i when i think about that what that means to me is that i didn't want to do things that i didn't want to do I wasn't willing to do the things that I didn't want to do and and which is largely why I became a musician you know I wasn't really willing to by the time I was 16 or 17 I wasn't really wor- willing to work in school um you know I had all the opportunities and privilege I could ask for I could have easily my parents would have paid for me to go to college In fact, when I became a musician and after I dropped out, they said, "Well, you could go to music school." But I didn't want to do anything that I didn't want to do, you know, and and I didn't understand that actually <laughs> that's how things happen work in life. Well, <laughs> what is it that I didn't understand? What am I saying that that if I wanted to to get somewhere that I had to be willing to do things that I didn't want to do. And um you know that was one of the most important things that I learned early in my sobriety that I needed to do things that I didn't want to do and of course I also learned that it wasn't that difficult or painful to do things that I didn't want to do. So I I think uh, you know this again goes back to sort of emotional maturity, you know, or uh, it's hard to say, maybe just being spoiled, you know. Uh being privileged and and you know never having been had to do anything difficult so that when when i was faced with that i thought well this isn't supposed to happen i'm not supposed to have to do something i don't like uh you know yeah um and i know not everybody's raised like that a lot of people you know uh a lot of people their parents actually expect them to do difficult things or things they don't want to do somehow uh, i get not to, you know this is you know personal which is that you know i was the fifth child the last child and i was the the fifth son and by the time my parents got to me they were worn out <laughs> i mean i had one kid so i so i know some of you have children and know like i don't know if any of you have had five five boys you know but and you know they weren't all uh terribly difficult but every one of them caused severe struggles for my parents so the, by the time it got to me my parents didn't want to 
deal with it. I completely understand. So I didn't, so I never learned to do anything. So I was, you know, <laughs> very spoiled in a weird way. Not, not that they gave me everything that I wanted, but that they didn't, you know, expect anything from me. In any case, this willingness to change, then I see that, you know, there was this, always this longing in me for something uh, spiritual and uh, for transcendence. Music, music was a way to transcendence. Drugs were a way to transcendence. Alcohol, sex, you know. Uh, but those were all, of course, temporary things. But I was also, you know, even from my late teenage years into my early 20s, was sort of looking at different spiritual trips. And of course, again, this is cultural, right? This, you know, the Beatles and the Ram Dass and all that was starting to happen. And I was interested, but not enough to actually do anything, because if doing something would have been difficult, right? And I didn't want to do anything I wouldn't, didn't want to do. Can be the name of this talk. I didn't want to do anything I didn't want to do. So, you know, it's interesting to me to then try to see where, where the transition happened um, and how, how I came to get sober. You know, it was a long, as, as it is for most of us, a long, a long route and, and a winding one. Um, but the key to me, and, and I always come back to this, is that the, the suffering uh, of the way things were became greater than the pain of doing something I didn't want to do. You know, it just the, the daily, this is not going anywhere. This is, it's not even that every day was horribly painful. It's just that you can only spin your wheels so long until you just get so frustrated and just give up on your, on your plan, you know, The plan that I had, uh, you know, was become a rock star and everything will be okay. And then, even before I got sober, meditate and get enlightened and everything will be okay. And neither of those were actual plans that actually involved any doing anything, you know, that, that I didn't want to do, you know, um, there were escapes really, but there were pieces in there. You know, there were things that were being developed that maybe I didn't know things like discipline, uh, mindfulness, concentration, um, creativity, all those things were were developing, but they weren't being applied in ways that that could actually allow for change. 
No, it's so interesting. I, uh, to to look at what what was the problem, right? And and again, I don't want to claim that you know my my addiction was the same as everybody's by any means. I think it's helpful for each of us to look at our own addiction and and come to some understanding of what it was about. I know for many people, the biggest problem was the substance. Um, For me, that was not the biggest problem. The substances were just allowing me to continue to avoid doing what I didn't want to do, you know, which means not doing the things that would actually bring about change. Because in order to change in positive ways and move forward in our lives, we have to do things that we don't feel like doing in this particular moment. You know, that's, that's called being an adult, right? And again, that's not what I wanted. I didn't want to be that kind of adult. I wanted to be the kind of adult that could drink and use and do the stuff that you wanted to do, but didn't have responsibilities, which is why I wanted to be a rock star, because that's what that's the definition of a rock star, right? Anyway, it's long gone. (laughs) So. Yeah, this, this, this question of changing, how, how do we become ready to change? You know, um, how do we let go? How does that process happen? And, and I think that for, I'll say like a, an emotionally, psychologically mature, healthy, balanced individual, you know, it's, it's still not easy to change and to grow and to, you know, to go through transitions in life. But um, there's maybe a little bit more grace and kind of process happening. For an addict, it seems like it's just keep banging your head against the wall <laughs> until you give up, you know. And for some people, they just keep banging their head against the wall until they, you know, get brain damage and then kill themselves, right? I mean, that's, that's like when you, if you don't get sober, you keep banging until you just die. But, um, you know, at a certain point to realize like there is a door, you know, you don't have to try to knock the wall down with your head. It's just not necessary. And yeah, how we arrive at that. I, I really understand why people say, oh, God got me sober, because it, it doesn't really make sense right, for many of us. For some people, it's pretty clear. Okay, I got DUI. They made me go into treatment. I got into treatment and I realized, oh, I got a problem. So I stopped, I guess. I don't know if it's ever that simple. But, but for many of us, it's like, what happened? Like, how did I do this? You know, it, it, 
in a lot of ways, my worst drinking and drugging was my early 20s. That's when I nearly killed myself multiple times. But partly due to my own conditioning, which was watching my parents drink in a controlled fashion. I learned how to drink and use in a controlled fashion, generally. <laughs> I would only lose control occasionally, <laughs> not every time. Now, I know, again, you know, you read the big book, AA big book, and it's like, oh, there's certain people who just can have one drink and they just got drunk every time, I guess. I'm not sure that's, that's literally the story. Maybe at a certain point, people get to that. I didn't get to that point. I, I was like fighting it in a weird way. You know, I was fighting myself. You know, when you look back, you think, why did you put yourself through all that? Why didn't you just stop? You know, I didn't realize there was a thing you could, I didn't think you could stop. But, but I also, this is, goes back to the cultural point. I also thought people who don't take drugs, people who don't smoke pot particularly are like, I don't want to be one of those people because they represented something like conservative to me, you know, something, you know, like redneck. And that's absurd, of course, looking back at it, like, what the hell, you know, yeah, like somehow taking drugs makes you progressive, you know, it's like, not really, <laughs> but it was associated with that. So, so there was part of that. So that, that then becomes identity. And so here's another piece, right? The critical, really critical piece. This becomes your identity, you know, and it's so interesting that, you know, I run into Buddhists who say, well, I don't want to say I'm an alcoholic because I don't want to take on that identity. And I'm kind of like, okay, well, when you were drinking and using addictively, that was pretty much your identity, whether you thought so or not. You know? Anyway, I'm judging back to my own experience, which is that, you know, and, and this, I think, is very much shared among addicts. Just like, this is the world that I live in. And this is the, the community that I'm part of, if you can call it, you know, my dealer and me, we're a community, you know, my bartender and me, we're a community. But, you know, it's the identity, right? And, and it's like, it's, it's safe and it's known. So it's, it's not, um, uh, you know, I'm not ready. I'm not entirely ready to turn it over. Because uh, it's like, okay, this is the world I know. So, you know, one of the hardest things, right, is to step into the unknown. There's this unknown world that involves not drinking and not using drugs. Like, who's in that world? I don't know. Like, losers and, you know, winos, junkies, you know. And, and it's must be really bleak because like what the hell do you do with your life you know it's so boring to not be high all the time 
Or on the other hand, oh, they're all just sort of straight, you know, they're all just like these, you know, uh, religious people that wear like white shirts and skinny ties, you know. you know, so so there's that whole like clinging. So the clinging is not just to the drugs and alcohol, right? It's clinging to an identity. It's clinging to a culture, uh, an idea of who I am, and it's this fear of this unknown that doesn't doesn't make any sense. It's you know, I mean, because I never knew anybody who didn't drink who didn't drink growing up. I didn't know anybody who did. There was one relative. (laughs) I knew one person who went to AA like in the fifties and he was married to my cousin. So he was my cousin and you know, my parents generation and he would drink Cokes at our, at the cocktail parties, but you know, he was a freak, you know what I mean? It's like in that culture, he would, or he was just kind of like the oddball. It was, wasn't like he represented something like another vision, like, oh, I could be like him. You know, like, no, like everybody drinks. So there wasn't some world that I saw, because when I saw him, it was at a cocktail party, you know, even if he wasn't drinking, everybody. So, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't sort of a view of where, what is the this world? And you know, I I suspect that everybody here tonight has had some some of this experience, like not knowing what this world is of recovery. I mean, I didn't even the word the word recovery wasn't part of my lexicon. You know, I had heard of sobriety. You know, and and a, a year or two before I got sober, I played with a, a singer. Who, songwriter singer songwriter who was sober so that that helped because he was part of my cultural milieu you know okay he's a musician i can see that and you know it sounded like maybe there was something going on in aa that was a little bit you know tolerable but um so that so that then you know, it was really largely the stepping into this unknown. And when I look back on that, you know, it was June 7th, 1985. I, I, what really stands out for me about that first day sober is that I just was like in a really good mood. I was really happy. And that, it, that didn't even really register for me in a way. I didn't immediately go, wow, I just feel so much better now that I've stopped drinking. I just, uh, I just felt better. And, and, and I don't know when I got sober exactly. I, you know, when I made the decision, I, I, I described this moment in one breath at a time where I was in this bar in Newbury Park, California, called the Red Robin. And our band had gotten fired. <laughs> and it was a really bad gig. And getting fired from a really bad gig is, you know, extra bad. 
and I, and I had recruited this studio drummer that I knew to play with our, this thrown together band that got fired and he didn't drink and he looked at me or he, you know, I was holding a Heineken <laughs> uh, near the front door and he had his snare drum under his arm as he's going, getting ready to leave. And he said to me, now I remember why I don't like to play in bars. I, I don't like drunks. You know? And I wasn't staggering or anything. I wasn't visibly intoxicated as far as I know, but who knows, right? Because we're not the best judge of those things. But it was like, it's so interesting that he was the guy, his name was Steve. You know, it's so interesting, like, he, he wasn't, it, it was not delivered as an insult to me by any means. It was, a, it was him speaking to a friend about how he was feeling in that moment. Because there were drunks, people that were visibly intoxicated right behind him at the bar. And that's who I think he was talking about. But, of course, you know, I heard it. And it was not the first time, you know, that, that the idea that I might, might be a good idea to stop drinking had ever come to mind. You know, I'd been told uh, several months before that I was an alcoholic. And of course, I'd been drinking to disprove that. But it was like, you know, that person that you really kind of respect, who you think is kind of cool. <laughs> so again, it kind of goes to that like cultural thing, because he's like part of my culture. He's a mu this, my musician culture. And he's saying, it's not cool anymore. You know, you did this, you thought you were cool. And he again, he's not saying this you know, literally to me, but I'm hearing it. I'm taking it that way. Like you thought this was cool. Like you, which I took it as like, you know, you don't have to do this anymore. This isn't working. You know, it's not working. And besides that, it's not really cool. And, you know, as a musician, I want to be cool, you know, like what the hell? That's why I don't try to play, you know, be a musician much anymore because I'm too old to be cool. You get to a certain age, it's just not allowed. They don't let you into the, the cool kids don't hang out with you. So, so I think that's when I made the decision, but I don't know. I don't remember thinking, yeah, this is my last Heineken, you know, but it was my last Heineken because I drove home and, and, you know, went in the next morning I had made that decision and I'm pretty sure I didn't make it when I woke up. I'm pretty sure I made it before I went to bed. I don't know why I say all that, except that, um, it's a, it's an interesting question. Like, when does that, when do we cross the line? Right. Cause there, there's a moment and, and I know a lot of people go back and forth across that line. And, and I didn't literally go back and forth across that line because that was the only time that I consciously made that decision. But I was like flirting with that line for, years right so uh, even though i can claim i never relapsed actually you could look at the previous seven years of my life as being one relapse after another because when i started meditating uh i stopped smoking pot every day and so 
it was like, do I smoke pot or do I not smoke pot? You know, so uh, I would stop and then I would start. And, and, uh, and the same with alcohol. I didn't drink every day. Uh, and I, you know, there was that whole thing of like, oh, if I don't drink for a few days, then I won't, I'll be able to have a drink and I'll get high, you know, or whatever. So, so that's the moment, right, of then, now I'm doing the thing that I don't, didn't want to do, you know, I'm stopping drinking, finally doing something that I don't want to do, that's uncomfortable, theoretically, although it turned out to not be uncomfortable at all, <laughs> which is, again, like, aha. So a lot of what goes on for me, and I, again, I'm going to generalize a little bit, say this might be very common, is that the thing that I don't want to do, that I, that I don't do because I don't want to do it, a lot of times I, the reason I don't do it is because I'm afraid that when I do it, it's going to be unpleasant or I'm not going to like it or it's going to be hard. But very often, once I do it, it turns out it's not that hard or it's not that unpleasant or actually it's kind of nice. Like, I never wanted to be a parent. <laughs> I, fortunately, my daughter's not watching. She knows that, I'm sure. I thought having kids, oh, what a pain in the ass, you know. <laughs> Oh, I like hassle. And then it's, it really crowds you, you know? <laughs> oh, and of course, having a child was like the happiest experience of, has been the happiest experience of my life, the most joyful. So absurd, right? So we have these fears. Like, what'll happen when I stop drinking? It's going to be terrible. Oh, no, it's great. It turns out, you know, Oh, and, you know, in a school, another thing, like I was afraid to go out of school. Like I dropped out of school and like, you know, all the stories around that. It's going to be so hard. Well, at least if I get a degree, I'll be able to make a living. I go back to school. I'm like, oh, school is really fun. <laughs> and then when it ends, I'm like, oh, I don't want school to end. <laughs> right? I want this to keep going. Now I'll get another degree, you know. Oh, we're so, I'm, I'm so deluded, you know, I'm so, stop saying we, I'm so deluded. So, you know, I, I, I hope that through facing change over and over and seeing that it was okay, that I've learned to, um, not be so afraid of it, you know, being willing to let go and, and be, you know, have, I guess, like, move through life more gracefully. I guess that is a nice image to move through life gracefully. So how do we get entirely ready to change? You know, I think that um, 
Yeah, that it starts with banging our head against the wall, somebody, and then realizing that there's a door, or however, whatever image you want. And just, you know, I think for addicts, it it definitely we have to hit a bottom. But what I think also can happen in recovery is that we start to realize that letting go uh, is a good idea and is worth doing. And, and we start to look for the blockages and look for the things that are holding us back and say, I'm going to take that on, you know, and this is what, what I think really, uh, in some ways identifies or kind of is what, is what characterizes uh, someone who's fully into recovery is that they are really engaging and asking, what am I stuck on right now? What is, what is causing me suffering? And we look, we become less willing to suffer, you know? I mean, that's the irony, right, of being an alcoholic or a drug addict, that we are willing to suffer to an incredible degree before we let go. But once we do that, we start to realize, oh, I don't have to do that. And I don't have to, take everything to the limit. You know, I don't have to like lose control of my diet or, you know, never exercise or, you know, uh, quit every job because I just don't feel like it, whatever, you know, we we don't have to suffer. Um, That we, that we can really, uh, make that choice much, much more quickly. And, and, and I, I see a lot of people who do that. And it's, it's a beautiful thing to see that growth, see people sort of asking, oh, what can I do to grow now? And those are the people who like come on retreats with me, you know, I've never been on a meditation retreat, but I really want to learn more meditation. And, and I feel like that's my, my growth edge, you know, I'm going to come and do that. Because it's scary, a silent meditation retreat. Wow. You know, um, so, so this is, uh, I think, where, where we want to get to this place of really asking this question. And then of course it becomes interesting to, to ask those questions because there's a subtle little (laughs) thing in here, which is what's the difference between the suffering that I need to let go of something and the suffering, which is the not wanting to do what I don't want to do (laughs) suffering. So, because I'm, I'm in a kind of transition right now with my teaching where I've been doing what, uh, this mentoring for the last four years or three years, but I've got one more year with this cohort. And I've decided, you know, I don't think that's really what I want to be doing. And it's a little tricky, like, right? I'm asking myself, uh, am I, do I want to stop this because I don't want to do what I don't want to do? Or do I want to stop this because it's really not 
working or it's not, you know, that, that I want to open up other things. And, and I'm really hopeful that um, this effing pandemic is going to like make it possible to teach people live again, please. Thank you. Because that's what I used to do. Uh, I don't know if you, any of you recall, but there used to be this thing where you would go to a place and there would be other people there and there'd be a meditation teacher. And then, and then you would like talk and interact and breathe on each other. You could even cough and you wouldn't be like freak out. Yeah. So I'm really hoping that that kind of comes back. I actually am, you know, I'm in London so far, as far as I know, I'm going to be with people live. Uh, and and uh, this, this fall, I have a, a weekend in Wisconsin. Where I'm going to go to a substance use disorder conference and give a workshop, you know, this is the kind of stuff I used to do back in the day, back when I was a young man. <laughs> so I'm hoping that that comes back. So uh, I hope this has been of some value or, or maybe even at least entertaining or something tonight. Uh, so, uh, it's uh it's good for me to be able to just talk with you guys even though we're not together um and in fact if i were at spirit rock most of you wouldn't be there uh unfortunately i mean i mean that's the advantage of this so so um i, I want to just open it up and see if there's any thoughts or questions or reflections Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.